before I pray, I wanted to uh, remind you parents again this morning, I'm talking about the destruction of Sodom. Uh, don't plan on being graphic in any way, but uh, if you've got your kids in here and maybe you haven't brought those topics up with them and you're not quite ready to bring that up, uh, when I pray, it'd be a great time. You could take them down to the children's hallway. Uh, if you have junior high kids in here and you're worried about what I might say this morning, I need to let you know uh, the train has already left the station. <laughs> you need to keep them in here and you need to have a conversation. I'm just going to stir it up for you today. You're going to have it today if you've been procrastinating a little bit, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would be men and women who worship you as you are. We pray, Father, that we would not worship you as we we wish that you were, as we imagine you might be, but as you genuinely have revealed yourself in Scripture. Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You've not left us to wander in the dark and to wonder about who you are, about what you think or how you act. Father, I even thank you for this very challenging passage of Scripture. I pray that we would learn from it with open, receptive hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 19. If you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, all I can say is, wow. (laughs) You picked quite a Sunday to start here at Grace Bible Church. Kind of wish you'd come last week. We talked Genesis 15, one of my absolute favorite passages in the Bible about Abraham's faith and the covenant that God made with him. Or, you know, next week we'll talk about Genesis 22, Abraham's incredible obedience where he offers up Isaac as a sacrifice. That would be a good week to start, but you chose Genesis 19. So here we are. Uh, I assume you've you've probably read the story before. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but as you're reading it, um, you ever thought, wow, why is this in the Bible? And my kids have gone through multiple versions of of children's Bibles. We've had the rhyming Bible, the cartoon Bible, picture Bible, and I've never yet, not in a single one of them, found the story of the destruction of Sodom. It's not in any of the kids' Bibles, and you know, I kind of like it that way. I like the the children's version. It's a little bit sanitized. We're left to wonder, why is it that God put that in the Word? Let me illustrate for you why I think it's there. Uh, You may have heard this story before. It's an apocryphal story about a ship that was uh, out on the ocean traveling through the sea late at night, very foggy as it uh, was coming in toward the shore. And uh, the watchman on duty noticed that there was a light heading straight toward them. He told the captain, the captain told the radio man, he said, signal that other ship, warn them that we are on a collision course and instruct them, advise you change course 20 degrees north, we're on a collision course. He received a message back that said, advise you change course 20 degrees south. That really frustrated the captain. And he said, send another signal. Send this. I'm a captain. Advise you change your course 20 degrees south. Received a message back. I'm a seaman second class. Advise you change your course 20 degrees north. He's really, really pretty mad now. He says, send another signal. I'm a battleship. Change course, 20 degrees south. Received a message back. I'm a lighthouse. (laughs) On the sea of life, there are some immovable rocks. God is who God is. His character is unchangeable. The truths related to his character are are immutable. God doesn't change. God is who God is. And we can either choose to dash ourselves upon the rocks of God's character, choose to reject who God is as he has revealed himself, or ignore who he is as he's revealed himself, or we can choose to be guided by God as he is. In our culture, largely, men and women reject God's self-revelation. But I've noticed also sometimes in the Christian community, sometimes we choose to live in ignorance of who God truly and actually is. Sometimes it's because we really don't want to go against the flow of our culture. We don't really want to stand out. We don't want to be rejected or we don't want to offend. Or we've become so absorbed into the culture around us that we we actually feel very comfortable living as the culture lives in rejection of who God is. To, To our own peril. 
This morning, we are going to look at three possible responses to the immutable, unchangeable character of God. We're going to look at the unbelievers who reject God's self-revelation. Then we're going to look at believers who choose to ignore God's self-revelation. And then we're going to look at a believer who chooses to live in light of God's self-revelation and be guided by who God is. I want you to begin by reading with me the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 19 and verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and they entered into his house and he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway, and he shut the door behind him, and he said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now, behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you, and do whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men, inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. We're going to look first at the way of the wicked, then the way of the worldly, and then the way of the wise. The way of the wicked, the way of the sodomites. What I want us to observe first is the attitude of the sodomites. Their culture has been a culture in a sense that says, we have no accountability. There is no moral authority in our lives. We are autonomous. This is our town. These are our bodies. We will do exactly what we choose to do when we choose to do it. Of Lot, they say, Who are you to judge us? You're an outsider. You're a stranger. This is our place. This is our culture. These are our bodies. We will do what we want to do when we want to do it. Does that sound familiar? Many cultures throughout human history that have adopted this fundamental disposition in life. Psalms describes it like this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no submission to any authority whatsoever. They're completely independent and autonomous of divine authority and even human authority. Consequently, they're free to do whatever they choose in their own minds. So what exactly was their sin? What was the sin of the Sodomites? It's described for us in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance abundant food, and careless ease. But she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. It was pretty straightforward there, the beginning part. The people of Sodom were arrogant. They were proud. They, they were very, very wealthy. They had so much, and they were so very comfortable, but they had absolutely no concern for those who lacked. No concern for the needy. No concern for the poor. And... We're told they were proud and actually committed abominations before the Lord. What were the abominations that they committed? Well, you know, in today's uh, culture, it's very popular to look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and explain it like this. You can find biblical commentaries, actually, that will give this interpretation. The sin of Sodom was a sin of a lack of hospitality. These two angelic messengers showed up at the gate of Sodom, and no one welcomed them into their home except Lot. Well, then the men of Sodom felt guilty because they hadn't shown hospitality, an ancient Near Eastern duty. And so they came to Lot's door, and they said, send the men out so that we can get to know them and show them hospitality. 
I, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the vocabulary and the context in Genesis chapter 19 makes it unmistakably clear that their sin was homosexual behavior. Okay? It's homosexual behavior. Now, this is one of the most important, visible, cultural, political, moral issues in our day. Now, we don't talk about it every week, but when the Bible addresses the issue, which it, which it does from time to time, then we need to discuss it as well. Uh, a few years ago, I, I talked exclusively on this topic in our series on the book of Romans. I'm going to talk about it a little bit this morning, but not, not nearly as in-depth. So if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, uh, it's in Romans, Romans chapter 1. Search Romans and homosexuality. I, I deal with it in a lot more depth. This morning, we're just going to talk about it uh, a little bit. And what I want to make clear is, is a few points. First, the, it's unmistakable in the Bible that the Bible declares that homosexual behavior is sin. Old Testament, New Testament. It's not an ambiguous issue in the Bible. Let me give you two illustrations from the Old Testament, Leviticus, Leviticus 18. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And from the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, women exchange the natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, and likewise the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed in their passions for one another. Hey, the Bible is clear, but Christians, our culture is moving completely different direction. And if you take a stand on this issue, you will suffer. Increasingly so, you will suffer. There are stories in the news uh, more and more frequently of uh, businesses essentially being shut down uh, because they are run by Christians and Christians take a stand on this and told, no, you're discriminating and you can't discriminate. You must serve this person or serve that person. People uh, don't get promoted. They lose jobs. It's, this is the direction the culture is going. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. But the biblical definition is very clear. Okay? Homosexual behavior is sin. Now, if you are struggling and wrestling with temptation in this area, or maybe you've given in to this area of sin, you may say to yourself, you know, but it, it feels natural to me. It, it feels like I was born that way. L let me just say, that doesn't surprise me at all. For each and every one of us, there are areas of sin that feel completely natural. <laughs> because they are natural. Because our nature is broken. Right? Every single one of us have areas of temptation and sin that feel utterly and completely natural for us. You may have been born with that particular disposition. You know, sin, the fall, has reached all the way into the very uh, DNA of men and women. We pass on diseases within family lines. We pass on sin within family lines. It may be that you were born with a certain area that you're going to be vulnerable to temptation in a broken and fallen world. It may be that it's a, a product of the, the, the culture or the family in which you were raised. And it feels natural because you were in that culture from birth. It may help you to, to go back and think through and figure out where does that natural bent toward this particular temptation or sin come from. That may be helpful. But it's not helpful to say sin is not sin. Whatever your particular area of sin may be. Whether it's homosexuality, whether it's a heterosexual lust, it's heterosexual sin, whether it's anger or pride, or impatience, or gossip. We don't do ourselves a favor to not call sin, sin, and to say, but it feels natural. I was born this way. Yeah, we were all born broken, and we all need to be fixed. In the area of homosexuality, the Bible is very clear. Homosexuality is sin. Now, at the same time, I want to make it clear, their sin was not same-sex attraction. Or if I can state it another way, their sin was not that they were tempted in this area. Temptation is not sin. And we're not responsible for our temptation. And we're responsible for how we respond to temptation, right? Martin Luther once said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, right? but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, right? Every single one of us are going to be tempted in a variety of areas. 
That's not sin. How do you respond to the temptations that come into your life? Maybe some that you were born with that are so deeply embedded in you. Maybe some that are, arise because of the family that you were born in. How do you respond to the temptations that come into your life? Okay, so their sin was not same-sex attraction. Their sin was homosexual behavior. Third, their sin was not the worst ever committed. Now, I think this is really important for men and women who have struggled in the area of homosexuality to hear from the church. Because it's easy if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you battle in this area to feel like, man, no one else knows what I'm going through. I'm the worst of the worst. No one could accept me. No one could love me. I I really don't fit in. I'll come and worship, but I will hide because my sin is the worst of the worst. I want you to hear very clearly the sin even in Sodom was not the worst of the worst. I want you to hear the words of Jesus because Jesus said, you know, there actually was a, a worse culture even than Sodom. He talks about this. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You ever read that verse? You just gloss over it. Jesus made his home base the city of Capernaum. He was born in Nazareth, but Capernaum became his home base. And so he was in Capernaum all the time. He did lots of miracles in Capernaum. And he says to the people of Capernaum, you know, if I had gone to Sodom and I had performed these miracles and I had preached, Sodom would have repented because even the Sodomites had softer hearts than you people of Capernaum who are so incredibly hard-hearted and self-righteous. Consequently, when you stand before judgment, it's going to be harsher on you than it is on the people of Sodom. That's a good reminder for us. That's a good reminder for us. Sin is sin, and any sin and every sin, even the smallest sin, separates us from God because God is utterly and absolutely and perfectly holy. Whether that is anger and pride, whether that is lust in the heart, or homosexual behavior, sin is sin. Now, at the same time, As believers, we need to remind ourselves that although sin is sin, there are some sins that have a deeper and more devastating consequence to our lives day to day. Specifically, sexual sins reach so deeply into our soul that they really, really damage us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? Paul says, don't you realize that this physical body that you're given was given to you by God to be the dwelling place of God, <laughs> to, to be made in the image of God, to bear the likeness of God, and to be indwelt by the very spirit of God so that you can go out and you can do good to others and glorify God. That is why God has given you body. And and, and when you take that body and you subject that body to sexual sin specifically, you're tapping into the deepest parts of your soul, your, your very identity, because we are sexual beings. Every single person in this room is either male or female. And when you tap into sexual sin, whether that is uh, premarital sex or extramarital sex, heterosexual or homosexual or pornography and lust. You're harming yourself and you're bringing consequences on yourself that sometimes are even more devastating than other sins. Sin is sin, right? Yeah, sin is sin. All sin is the same? Well, not exactly. Because in this life, there's some sins that really damage us more, that are harder for us to re- recover from, that, are, that bend our minds more than other sins. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be exceptionally cautious. You know, from time to time, I've heard it said, I've been in these discussions, particularly uh, confrontations. I've been told, well, you know, Brian, if you really love someone, then you'll support them in the decisions you make. If two men really love one another or two women really love one another, the loving thing is to support them and to encourage them because they're finding fulfillment in that relationship. And I say, really, do you think that that's love? Let me take you back to the the battleship illustration. When the man who was tending the lighthouse said, no, I'm not going to change course. You you change course. The captain got pretty mad. He didn't like that at all. 
And then when he said, you know, I, I'm a captain, and the man said, well, I'm a, I'm a seaman second class. He was, he was furious. He was angry. And then he said, well, I'm a, I'm, battle ha- I'm battleship. And he said, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm a lighthouse. He probably felt embarrassed. So he felt embarrassed. He felt angry. He felt frustrated. Uh, maybe even felt a little hurt. I don't know. Would it have been loving for the man who was tending the lighthouse to say, you know, I really want the captain to feel loved. <laughs> He's a captain after all. And, you know, I'm just second class seaman. I want him to feel loved. I want him to feel affirmed. And after all, it is his ship. I should let him do what he wants with his ship. I, I don't think that I'll, I'll tell him that I'm a lighthouse. I won't tell him to change course. I won't warn him. Would that be loving? Of course that would not be loving. Because the consequence would be devastating. The ship would be destroyed. Possibly the captain and his crew would lose, lose their lives. It's, it's, it wouldn't be loving at all. Sometimes love is very hard. Sometimes love is very tough. Sometimes we have to tell people, well, the course that you're on is going to destroy you. And it has been my experience that within the church, often we don't do this for one another and we suffer. Largely, the church lacks humility and courage to confront sin. Do you have people in your life to confront the sin in your life. You need that, and you need to be that kind of person. You need to be able to go to another believer in humility and say, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. I'm not perfect. As it says in Galatians, you two look to yourselves as well, lest you be tempted in that area also. I'm a sinner, I'm broken, but I love you. And I notice that there are certain choices you're making in your life that are leading you on a path of self-destruction. I must speak truth. I have the courage to speak truth, but to do so in humility. Men and women, that is what the church is for. That is what the body of Christ is for. And we suffer when we don't have relationships that are that solid and that deep that we will do that for one another. Instead, we allow the ship to get closer and closer and closer to the rock. And then once in a while, people step in Sometimes it's too late. The consequences are set. And there is destruction. Believers, we owe that to one another. We owe that to one another. Their sin was not the worst, but their sin was extreme. Their sin was pervasive. It was all throughout their culture. Read with me. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 20. The Lord said... The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Chapter 19, verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. That phrase at the end could also be translated, all of the men or the people without exception. You know, sometimes biblical writers use uh, hyperbole or exaggeration. What the author is doing here, what Moses is doing here is, you know, he's piling description upon description to let you know everybody showed up. Every man without exception. The sin is pervasive in this culture. The sun goes down, nighttime falls, and every man shows up at the door, young and old. Fifth characteristic, their sin was violent. When Lot wouldn't immediately release these men, they begin banging on the door. They're banging on the door. And when it seems that they can't break down the door, they say, all right, then Lot, we're going to take you and we're going to treat you even more violently than we were going to treat them. And last night, my son and I talked about this. Uh, if you wonder, at what age do you talk about these things? Well, my son's 12 and we've talked about these kinds of issues actually for a couple of years because he brought them up and he wanted to know because he heard about this stuff. And so we talked about it. And he said, Dad, how could it be that they would actually want to break down the, the door to have sex with these other men? I said, because sin bends the mind. And the longer you stay in that culture, the more that it bends you and bends you and bends you. They become violent. Sixth, their sin was prolonged. Turn back to chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13, verse 13. Years earlier, this description is inserted. It says, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were already wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. These are men and women 
who have been sinful for a long, 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 long time. And what you see throughout Scripture is that God normally waits for judgment. He waits and he waits and he waits. The few incidents that I could think of last night in which God uh, quickly and immediately brought judgment were times when his own people sinned. But when people don't know him and they're in sin, God waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. Why? It says in Ezekiel, I take no delight in the destruction of the wicked, rather that they would turn and that they would live. Therefore, repent, repent. But the hearts of men grow cold because they think that God is not just because justice doesn't come immediately. Why is God waiting? Why is God waiting for many years? He's giving Sodom an opportunity to turn. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is patient. God is merciful. Why did God send angels to Sodom? Because God really didn't know what was going on there? Did he really need to investigate? No. The word angel means literally messenger. God was giving them one last chance. One last chance. It was merciful that God sent the messengers. It was merciful that God rescued Lot. I would argue it was even merciful that God ultimately brought judgment and destruction on Sodom. It was merciful to the nations around so that they wouldn't be polluted by Sodom's sin, which was spreading throughout the valley. It was merciful to those nations around so that they would be warned, if we follow that path, we might suffer a similar fate. That is mercy. Even in the destruction, God was showing mercy. Read with me now chapter 19 and verse 23. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone, that is fiery rocks, fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground and what previously had been an extremely fertile area became rock and dust, and literally nothing grows there to this day. And Sodom is right down near the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because it's dead. <laughs> there's no life in the sea. There's no life around that sea. Sometimes I go, gosh, I, I think I'd rather just pick up the children's Bible, right? Let's just jump from Genesis 15 to Genesis 22. But it's there because it reminds us God is holy. God is righteous and God judges sin. Every single man and woman will ultimately die and they will face the judge of all the earth that is God. And they'll have to give an accounting for their sin. Every single person will give an accounting for their sin. The only issue will be, have you allowed Jesus Christ to bear the penalty for your sin or will you pay it yourself? See, God rained down an even worse judgment on his son, Jesus Christ, didn't he? Because all of the sin of Sodom and all of the sin of Gomorrah was heaped upon Jesus Christ. And all the sin that you've committed and that I've committed and that every generation has committed was heaped upon one man, Jesus Christ. God poured all of the sin of all of humanity for all of time upon his son, Jesus Christ, and poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ. His son experienced the ultimate separation from his father, the ultimate pain and torment as a consequence of sin so that we would not have to. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so any man and any woman can stand before God and can say, no, I do not deserve to be here. I'm a sinner, but Christ died for me. You poured out your judgment on him. I believed and I accept. And I encourage you, if you've never come before God and said, God, I believe that Jesus died for my sin, maybe this message is for you this morning. Maybe God called us not to skip Genesis 19 and go from 15 to 22 so that you would hear the really hard truth that God judges sin because God loves to judge? No. Is God vindictive? No. But God is holy. And so he must, out of a holy character, judge sin. But because he's loving, he's judged your sin in his son, Jesus Christ. And you need this morning to believe. Believe. That's the first group, the first response The way of the wicked who reject God's self-revelation, they reject the warning of the angels, they reject the warning uh, that even comes from Lot. Second group that we need to look at is the way of the worldly, that is Lot and his family. Read with me in verse 12. 
Genesis 19 and verse 12. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you have here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters, whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we're about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be joking. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they brought them outside, one said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you've magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now, behold, this town is near enough to flee to. It is small. Let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, behold, I grant this request also. Now, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was Zoar, or small, insignificant. The sun had risen over the earth, When Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went out to to the place where where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. Let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. (laughs) So in 2 Peter... Peter describes Lot like this. God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. I hope that that kind of uh, upsets your theological apple cart just a little bit. What in the world, Peter? (laughs) Didn't you read the story? Righteous? Lot. In case you missed it, three times. Righteous man, righteous soul, righteous Lot. What in the world does Peter have in mind? Well, certainly Peter does not mean that he was righteous in his behavior. Last week we talked about this. Lot is justified. Lot is declared righteous. Why? Because he's a believer in the Lord. He believes in the Lord. And as a result of his faith, just like Abraham, God credits faith as righteousness. He has right standing with God. Consequently, we know we will see Lot in eternity. But his behavior was anything but righteous. But his status was righteous. Lot is what the New Testament would describe as a worldly or a fleshly or a carnal believer. 
Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, so brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, that is mature, but instead as people of the flesh, that is infants in Christ. Notice he says to these people in Corinth who are involved in a drunkenness at the Lord's table and gluttony and there is incest in their church and there is uh, all kinds of promiscuity in their church. I mean, man, they, it's just absolute mess and there's gossip and factions and it's just a disaster. And he says, I can't talk to you as to spiritual people, but you are in Christ. That is Paul's phrase for one who is secure in Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ. But I can't speak to you as spiritual people, but infants, you're babies. And we say to one another, that is just not right. It isn't. It isn't right. It's it's abnormal. I've given you this illustration before. Imagine you walk up on a person and they're holding a baby and you go, what a beautiful baby. That's just a sweet baby. How old is your baby? They say, my baby's 12. You go, no. Something's not right. Because a 12-year-old should be growing and maturing. That's abnormal. And it is. It's abnormal for a believer not to grow into maturity. But is it possible? Yeah, it is. Look at Lot. Look at Corinth. But there are consequences when a believer does not move on to maturity. In fact, that's what most of the New Testament epistles' exhortations are about. They are urging believers, secure in their eternal destiny, to move on and grow in faith so that they don't suffer the consequences. Specifically, don't love the world like Lot loved the world. Because if you love the world, the world will destroy you. Don't love the world. You weren't made for the world. The world hates God. You were made for God. There are a few lessons that we learn from Lot. First, the world entices us slowly. Turn back to chapter 13, Genesis chapter 13 and verse 10. Lot's wealth and Abraham's wealth and both have grown so much that they are in conflict with one another. There's not enough space. There's not enough grazing area. There's not enough water. So Abraham says, you pick a direction. You go one way, I'll go the other. We'll separate. Verse 10, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Lot made a choice. He made a choice for the world. He saw ease, he saw comfort, he saw wealth. And what did he do? It says he moved eastward. Remember what does that mean symbolically in Genesis? If you move to the east, you're moving away from God. He moves eastward, away from God. He moves away from Abraham, God's blesser. Instead, he moves toward the world. And he pitches his tents in the valley. Now, we see a a believer who commits a a tragic sin, and we go, wow, how did that happen? Sometimes even the people around go, how did that happen? It just seemed like he was just walking so well, and then just like that. You know, that's not how sin happens. Lot made a conscious choice here to make a step away from God. He moved away from God. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, where do we find Lot? It says Lot is now in the gates of the city. That means Lot is now a leader of Sodom. And I'm sure Lot said to himself, no, I'm just going to go down and enjoy that wealth, but I'm still going to live for Yahweh. I'm going to worship Yahweh. I'll even maybe be an influence on those around me down in the valley. But slowly, subtly, he just moved closer and closer and closer and closer. And then you find him. He's got his house in Sodom. He's in the gates of Sodom. He's the leader of the city of Sodom. And it started with an intentional decision to move away from God. A small decision, it would seem, that went uncorrected. And he moved away from the Lord. I heard sin described one time as a slow slip on a banana peel, right? You know, we see the cartoons and it's just, yeah, you're just walking along, boom, there you go. That's not how sin happens. It's just small, gradual steps that go uncorrected. And any person, any believer is capable of horrible sin if he does not address the sin in his, his life or her life. Okay, so the world slowly entices us. Second, the world dulls our spiritual discernment. 
Lot is a really paradoxical character. He's in the gate and he does the ancient Near Eastern custom. He even bows low to these people. He brings them in. He feeds them. He washes their feet. He does all that wonderful stuff. But then when the crisis occurs and these men want to take the visitors out and, and, and rape them, he says, no, I've got a better idea. Take my daughters. <laughs> yeah, like on the cave it said, worst dad of the year, right? I mean, holy cow. Can you imagine being Lot's daughter? You're in the background saying, wait, wait, wait a second, I'm, I'm engaged. I'm about to be married. So he protects the strangers and wants to give away his daughters. But he warns his sons-in-law, but then when the angels come to get him, he hesitates. It's like he's kind of puttering around his house. You know, do you think I should take this water pitcher with me? But, it, it, but he wake up. You're about to be destroyed. Get up. They have to literally grab him and drag him out of the city because he has become so absorbed in this culture. And as they're walking out, they say, flee, flee to the mountains. And then he negotiates. He says, well, I really don't want to go to a cave. I don't do well in caves. I'm kind of a city guy. At least give me that little town over there. I mean, man, fire and brimstone's about to come down and destroy everything. Go, run. Who cares where you go? He's this weird Weird character. Why? Because his, his discernment is, is gone. As it says in Second Peter, his righteous soul had been tormented day after day after day after day after day for years, and now his conscience is just weak, and his will is, is atrophied, and he can no longer make good, wise choices. That's what sin does to us. Third, the world corrupts our entire lives. Lot loses his house. He loses his livestock. He loses all his wealth. He loses all these things worse. He, he loses his wife. I just noticed last, last night, I was reading through this again, I noticed it says, uh, Lot's wife from behind him looked back. See the implication of that? Lot's still running. His daughters are probably behind him. His wife is behind him. He finally arrives in the cave. His daughters come into the cave. He looks around and says, where's your mom? He didn't see that happen because he didn't turn back. But she loved Sodom. (laughs) Whose fault is that? Certainly she bears some responsibility, but I would argue he he bears a lot of responsibility because he moved his family into that city. He betrothed his daughters to sodomites. Two of the men who were standing at the door who were wanting to rape those visitors were the future grooms, his future son-in-laws, because all the men of the city showed up. So when his daughters come up with this solution that we can save our family through incest rather than just maybe praying, I don't know, ask God, is that a shock? Is that a surprise? No, because Lot has allowed his family to be utterly and thoroughly corrupted and destroyed by the world. That's what the world does. Slowly, subtly. It destroys us. So how can we apply this? What would we learn from this? A couple thoughts. First, Jesus said this to us. He said, be in the world, not of it. Be in the world. I'm not going to take you out of the world because I want you to be light in the darkness. But you need to be very different from the world. You need to live apart. Paul put it this way, do not be conformed to this world, or as J.B. Phillips translated this, don't be squeezed into the mold of the world. You need to evaluate, are you being squeezed into the mold of the world? You look more like the world than you look like a worshiper of Jesus? Think about it. It's your job. Did you enter that job and say, you know, I'm going to be salt and light in my job. I'm going to influence my job. But now, the people around you, maybe they don't love God, and more and more and more you begin to see yourself thinking like them, feeling like them, behaving like them, really not standing apart whatsoever. Maybe you need to tell some of your Christian friends, hey, I need accountability. I am being absorbed by the world in my job. Get them to pray for you. Or maybe you may really, if it's been year after year after year, and your conscience and your will are just so utterly beat down, it may be that God is calling you to resign, to get out of that environment. There is no obedience that is too radical. And maybe you say, well, I can't find a job that pays this well. Okay, better to be poor than to be a part of Sodom. Right? Maybe another Christian can go in there and do fine in that environment, but maybe you can't right now and you need to get out. I don't know. But you need to evaluate. 
Am I influencing the world around me? Am I being salt and light or is the world crushing me? Students, with your roommates, maybe you signed up to live with these, these guys, these girls, that I'm going to be an influence around them, but maybe now slowly, subtly, they, they're just they're tearing you down. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need accountability. Friends to say, hey, we're going we're to check on you because you're beginning to think and feel and behave just like them. Or maybe you need to get out of that setting. Maybe you need to move out. You find somebody else to sublease it. Maybe you can't find a sublease. Maybe you need to pay double rent. Maybe if your spirit is so crushed by the world right now that you look just like the world, maybe you need to move home. If your home with your parents is a, is a healthy spiritual environment, maybe you need to move home. There, there's no obedience that's too radical. Because you are called to live a holy life and be salt and light. And if you can't where you are right now, get out. Parents, how are you parenting? What, what influences are you allowing to get into your family, into the hearts and minds of your children? You know, Bryan College Station is a pretty relatively moral environment. It's a great place to be. Maybe that's why you moved here. You want to raise your family in an environment like this. Well, you know what? Guess what? Sodom is digital, right? Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah come into your home wirelessly now. It's not good parenting to say, here's your iPad and walk away from your kids. Okay, with no protection, with no guardianship over you know, the videos they see or the movies they see or the music they listen to. Do you know their friends? What their friends are into? What their friends are posting? Are you, are you watching? Are you guarding, protecting? I've had parents say to me, you know, but I, I don't, I don't, wanna, I want, I don't wanna shelter my kids. And I say, really, why not? You don't wanna shelter them? One of the most beautiful images of God and our relationship with him is that he is a God who shelters us from evil. Right? Especially when your, your children are small, they need to be sheltered and protected. You need to be the one who manages and guards the influences on their hearts and their minds and their souls. And as your kids get older, you need to monitor that and you need to train them that they don't need to experience the world to know that the world is evil and destructive. You need to teach them how to monitor and guard and protect their own hearts and their own minds so that they can live well and wisely. Okay. That's the third path. Let me cover it quickly for us. The way of the wise. It's illustrated with Abraham. Okay. Three things that Abraham did. Now, was Abraham perfect? No, he wasn't perfect. But in his relationship to the people of the valley, there are three things that he did. First, Abraham brought blessing. Do you remember that the people of the valley were all captured by those kings? And what did Abraham do? He chased them down and he brought everything back. Okay, no one died. He, he, every life was spared. All of their goods, all their wealth, all their cattle, all their donkeys, all of their sheep, uh, all of their, their gold and silver, everything. Abraham brought it back. Did the people of the valley know Abraham? Oh, man. Everybody knew Abraham's name. Why? Because Abraham is the man who blessed us beyond belief. We're alive because of Abraham. Abraham blessed those people. Abraham was engaged with the world but on his terms, as a blesser, right? He wasn't absorbed into their culture. Second thing, Abraham lived apart. When he brought all that wealth back, the kings in the valley said, here, take all the wealth. We'll just take the people, but you take all the wealth. And what does Abraham say? No, I, I don't, I don't want to be any part of, of the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's not who I am. What, what I need, God gives. Abraham was engaged with the culture in the world, but he was not of the culture. He was outside. He lived a very distinct, separate life. And then third, Abraham interceded. When the Lord comes to him and says, I need to reveal to you, Abraham, what I'm about to do. I'm going to destroy the cities of the value. Abraham, valley. Abraham begins to plead. He said, God, won't you spare them? Spare, spare the cities. Be patient just a little bit longer. What if you find 50 righteous people? And the Lord says, okay, for 50. Hate to ask again, God, but what if there's just 45, five less? 45. Now, I don't want to wear you out, God, but what if there's 40? Okay, 30. Okay, 20. Okay, 10. You got it. Of course, God sent his angels down to Sodom and couldn't find 10 because <laughs> the culture was so thoroughly corrupt. But Abraham interceded for the lives of these people. When we see evil around us in our culture, what are we tempted to do? We say, God, when are you going to destroy this culture? Right? 
rain down some fire and brimstone right about now. We can pick the neighborhoods or the cities in particular, you know, certainly not Texas, but as you move a little bit further east or west, right? Bring it down, God, right? We're like James and John. When the Samaritans reject Jesus, they say, Jesus, do you want us to right now call down fire from heaven? Right? Do you remember that? Like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Elijah, should we call it down and destroy him? And Jesus says, I I don't even know what spirit you are from. The son son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Right now, God is extending his patience and kindness. Why? So that men and women will be called to repentance and faith and be rescued from destruction. God will execute judgment on sin. In his way, in his timing, that is for God to do. What is it for us to do? To live well and wisely in this world and to intercede on behalf of this world. To live lives that are holy, that are really different, set apart. We don't look like the world. And yet we're deeply engaged in the world. We are friends of sinners and love them, but love them while we are distinct from them so that they can have life. Men and women, that is why passages like this are in the Bible. To remind us that we are called to be holy people because we serve a holy God. And it is as we live differently that we can have a profound impact for good and for the glory of God on our world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would guard and protect us from the enticements of the world. I pray, Father, for some of us that we would just wake up. We would see the way that the world is affecting us, squeezing us into its mold. And that we would create around us friends, relationships, where we speak truth to them and they speak truth to us so that we can all end our lives and and leave just a wonderful legacy behind, a legacy like Abraham and not a legacy like Lot. Father, I pray for any who don't know you this morning that they would get a sense of your holiness and your justice, that you you do punish sin. They also see your deep and profound love that you provide a way of escape. I pray, Father, that today might be the day of salvation for someone today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you. Go and be salt and light in the world. We'll see you next week.